But it is a new year, and so we're going to start a new series today. We're still going to be in the book of Acts. We've been in Acts all last year. We'll be in Acts all of this year. But we're sort of at a pivot point as we enter Acts chapter 13. So last year was mainly about Peter and the church in Jerusalem and how this movement got started. So after Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. He tells his followers, continue this movement that I've begun. And so as they do that, Peter and John and some of the other disciples, they start this movement that becomes known as the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't at first. They didn't really know what it was for a long time. Even now in Acts 13, they still may not quite know what it is, but they're working on it. But now we're pivoting to really the second half of Acts, and we're going to focus on the Apostle Paul for this next year. Uh, his travels, his ministry, uh, some of his thoughts and writings and ideas and what he did and what we see in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at this journey first with this series starting today, Legends in the Making, is what this series is. So this series is going to journey with Paul, or he's still Saul for right now, Saul and Barnabas as they start Paul's first missionary journey. And it's sort of the, the genesis of who Paul is going to be. He's going to learn a lot of lessons along the way. Uh, this missionary journey of Paul, Saul, and Barnabas lasts a little bit less than a year, and they traveled to about eight or nine different cities in the Mediterranean, and they come back to where they started, as we'll look at here in Acts 13 in just a moment. Um, but we're going to look at this uh, for a, a several weeks uh, this winter here, and here's the, the hope with this series. I believe that God has legendary plans for you, for your life. It's not just for Saul, not just for Barnabas, not just for people in the Bible. I believe God has legendary plans for your life. And so my hope in this series, the next several weeks, is that God will help to reveal what those plans might be, or maybe the next step in what that plan is, or maybe you're going to look at some things that we see in the lives of these people and you're going to say, you know what, I just need the courage to take that step I know is next. Maybe you've been waiting on not God, but on you. Maybe he's waiting on you to take the next step that you know is there, but you're just not quite ready. You're just not sure if it's the right next step. I believe this series can help us to figure some of those things out. So that's my hope and my desire is that we can get maybe more clarity, more direction on what God's plan is to fulfill all that he has for us. But the first thing that we're going to have to do as we start this series today is we're going to have to get ready, get set, and go. We're going to get on the starting blocks of this legendary plan that God has for your life as we join Saul and Barnabas on the starting blocks of God's plan for their lives here in Acts chapter 13. We'll look at these three simple steps, ready, set, go, and we'll look at the just three verses today in Acts chapter 13. And so the first step here obviously is ready. Get ready. So look at Acts chapter 13, verse number one, and here's what it says. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. So let's look over these. These are the five main church leaders in this church in the northern part, really not even of Israel. They're, it's north of Israel here in Antioch of Syria. Five men listed. Two of them, the book ends, we know. The three in the middle, we don't quite know much about them. So Barnabas, the first one listed, we've met him before. And again, what I've really felt in the last year is he's popped up in just the right moments. In Saul's life, in the church's life, in the history of what's going on in Acts, Barnabas is just the right person at the right time. I think he's a very underrated church leader of the first century church. 
but he's here helping to lead and teach at this church, and he's going to go with Saul here very soon on his first missionary journey. Then we have Simeon, the second man listed here. We don't know a lot about him. Based on the Greek there, um, it would imply that he's probably a convert from Africa, and some scholars would say that this Simeon or Simon could be the same Simon who helped to carry the cross of Christ during his crucifixion. If you read the account there, when he sort of falls midway, they order someone from the crowd named, whose name is Simon to carry the cross a far distance. It's possible it's the same guy here who's now teaching at this church. The third man is Lucius. There's not really anything that we know about him from historical context, from biblical context, but he's listed as a teacher and a prophet here in this church. Then Menaean, the fourth guy listed, is very interesting. It says he grew up as a childhood friend of Herod Antipas. So Herod the Great, his father, was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. So Herod Antipas' father, Herod the Great, was the one who ordered the death of dozens, if not hundreds, of young boys some 30, 40 years before this moment happens. But his son, Herod Antipas, who takes over during the lifetime of Jesus soon after, grew up with this man, Menaean. And so probably from that context, he might be the oldest of these five leaders. He might have some wealth and connections involved with him. But we know that he, at some point, had wealth and connections. Maybe not now, but at some point, he did. So he's here as a leader in this church as well. And then bringing up the rear is good old brother Saul. He's mentioned last. He's probably the youngest of the five and probably the least experienced of any of these five in church ministry. We'll look more at that process here in just a second. Because now everyone knows Saul or Paul. He'd be number one on the list. If you're like, who are the five leaders in this church? You're probably going to only know one of them, and it's going to be Paul. But he's listed at the very end with no description about him whatsoever. He's sort of an afterthought in many ways. But here's the reality that Saul has been learning and is learning right here. And it's kind of a harsh reality about getting ready, but it's a reality that we have to deal with as well. And here it is. The ready comes in the waiting. This is a, this is a lesson that Saul has been learning for many years. Because by this point in Acts 13, it's been somewhere between 14 and 17 years since Saul's conversion way back in Acts chapter 9. So we don't, we don't really think about this, but in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, Paul sort of gives a little bit about this part of his life. Not a lot of details, but we know some of the timeline here. So you go back seven to, up to 17 years when Paul is one of the people that are against the church. He's an up-and-coming Jewish leader, but he's against the, this new movement called the church that follows Jesus. And he's persecuting them, he's imprisoning them, and on his way one day to imprison Christians, he is knocked on his back by this blinding vision of Jesus who speaks to him and tells him he's going to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. So he has this calling 17 years before, and then he, so he starts to try to sort of kind of preach in the synagogues. And he's run out of town to save his own life. He goes back up north to this city called Tarsus where he grew up. And he goes to Arabia for three years. But he spends the next 14 years to 17 years in obscurity in Tarsus up north. He's not writing letters that are in the Bible. He's not doing ministry that anybody takes any note of. He's just kind of waiting around. He's getting ready in the waiting. And I can only imagine someone like Saul who has such this amazing conversion experience while he's waiting is thinking, okay, God, what's the deal? Like I had this blinding vision that changed the course of my life and I'm up here twiddling my thumbs in Tarsus. 
I'm not doing anything of any value. I'm not making any difference. I'm just waiting around. What's going on? What's the plan? Why am I waiting? I'm not getting any younger. You know, life's just passing me by. I'm getting into the prime of my life, and I'm not doing anything. But he was getting ready in the waiting. So we don't know what happens in this time frame. We don't know what happens in this near two-decade time frame. But at some point, Barnabas shows up in Tarsus and says, Hey, Saul, there's this new church a little bit south of here in Antioch of Syria. I want you to come help me teach at this church. And so he goes there, and for a year, he and Barnabas and these other three men help to lead and develop and grow this new church. So it took that long, but finally, after that period of time, God said, Okay, Saul, now you're ready. But ready had to come through the waiting. And the same is true today for us as it was then for Saul. Unfortunately, it's a hard lesson to learn, but readiness comes in the waiting. And who in here likes to wait for things? No one likes to wait for anything ever. We are instant society, more than we've ever been. I want it right now. I want it perfectly done. I want it packaged. I want it, you know, exactly how it's going to be now. No waiting. You know, I want instant results, instant answers, instant gratification. That's how we live, but that's not how it works. In your life, it's not how it works. Spiritually, it's not how it works. Ready comes in the waiting. And so while we're waiting, here's my encouragement. That's just the reality of life. And so while we're waiting, the encouragement is to be patient. Psalm 27, verse 14 says this, Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. So the psalmist here tells us waiting is not easy because it requires patience, it requires bravery, it requires courage to wait. It requires courage on your part to not try to rush God's process. Like, I'm ready right now. Let's go, let's go. And God's like, you are not ready. You think you're ready, but I'll let you know when the time is right. When the time is right, you'll feel that release. You'll feel the tension leave. You'll, you'll know to some degree more than you know now when you think you're ready, when you really are ready. And so God says just be patient, be brave, be courageous. Don't get ahead of what I'm trying to do. Don't try to rush the process, okay? Life is not a TV dinner. It's a crockpot meal, so we just have to be okay with that. But one is better than the other. And so we have to get ready in the waiting. This also requires trust. Waiting requires trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, great verse to start your year with. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. God, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. Let's go. What are you waiting for? Now, that's my understanding, right? Don't depend on that. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. So you can tell God, God, I don't understand what the deal is, but I trust you. I don't see why there's a flashing red light and I'm ready to go on green. What is holding you up? What's holding me up? I don't get it, but I trust you. I don't feel like I should have to wait this long. Look at this person. They're way ahead of where I, where I think I should be and I should be ahead of them, but I trust you. I'm not going to lean on my timing, my understanding, because it's limited I can only see a very small sliver of time in only one direction, and God can see all of time and space multi-directionally. He knows forwards, backwards, future, past. He knows it all at the same moment. And so we can trust God in that. And it's not just Saul that had to wait here in the Bible. Let me give you some other quick examples from Scripture. So Abraham was promised a son, 
when he was 75 years old, he had to wait 25 years till he was 100 for Isaac to be born. It's a long time to wait. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, he was put in a pit and then owned by a man named Potiphar and then put in prison and then went to the palace. That four-stage process took 13 years where he, no one knows who he is. No one knows if he's even alive. He's not making any difference, it seems. 13 years of waiting. Even Jesus had to wait till he was 30 to start his ministry. Jesus, the Son of God, had to wait 30 years for the right time for his public ministry to begin. We get ready in the waiting. We get ready in the waiting. So until you're ready, keep waiting. Wait faithfully, wait patiently, wait courageously, wait bravely, because the time will come, the right time, the right moment, the right circumstances will align themselves, and God will then say, okay, we're ready. But then it's not ready, go, it's ready, set, go. So ready and then set is the second main idea here today. And so we kind of tease this a little bit, but let me ask you this question. You may feel ready, but are you set? You may feel ready, but are you set? You're like, well, what does that mean? Let's look at verse number two here of Acts 13. Acts 13, verse two. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord, worshiping the Lord, sorry, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. There's two things going on here in this verse that I think that help us, help us get set, okay? Two things here in this one verse that help us to get set. The first thing is what we're doing this week, prayer and fasting. They were worshiping and fasting when God said, here, get them set, okay? That got them ready to go to hear from God. That's why I said that earlier. Maybe you're like, I've never really sensed, you know, God's voice. I've never really, you know, really known what direction to take. Prayer and fasting can accelerate that in your life. It can make that possible in your life. You can have this sense of what God is calling you to do as you dedicate yourself to prayer and fasting. Because prayer and fasting sets our hearts and minds. It focuses us in so many powerful key ways. Uh, it focused the church here in Antioch in Acts 13 to be able to sense and hear God's direction for somebody else. So sometimes what you're praying for, God may give you something for somebody else, which is weird, but maybe what they're waiting on is for you to hear from God to confirm to them what God's wanting them to do. And that's a weird idea, I get it, but that's what we see here in Acts 13. Prayer opens us up to hear from God, what he wants to speak to us, what he wants us to do and say, and how he wants us to live. And usually we think of prayer as asking God for something or for him to change a certain circumstance. And that's true, and that can and does happen. We should pray for God to do things and change things. However, more often, prayer changes the prayer. Prayer changes the one who is praying. Because that sometimes you think, well, why is this not right? Well, maybe I need to realign my thought process about that. Maybe I need to change something in my heart to get me more ready for being set for what God might have me go and do. More often, prayer changes our focus. It gets the focus off of me and onto him, which is a great place to start if you're trying to get set for what he wants you to do. Psalm 139 says this, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That's the best prayer you can pray. It's, God, I want you to set me. I want to be ready, and then I want you to set me where you want me to go. God, check my heart. Check, why am I praying for this thing? 
what's the motivation behind this? Is it for me? Is it so I can, you know, I'm praying for this so that I can say, oh, I've got this, or I can just brag about this thing, or I can feel a certain way. What's, even for what I'm praying for, God, search my heart, check my motives. Is this for selfish reasons? Have I made life too much about me? Could I be the one getting in the way of what you're trying to do? I keep thinking it's God, but is it me? God, search me, test me, my heart, my thoughts, my mind. Prayer helps us to do that, and fasting intensifies that. Because we're withholding that essential thing that we need for a short time. Usually it's food in the traditional sense of fasting. So we can give more of that time and attention focused on God, his plan, his will, his desires for us. It sharpens our focus. Uh, Prayer and fasting sets our hearts and minds in a more long-term way, not just the focus off of me and onto God, but in a more eternal mindset. Paul, later on, he would write this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So prayer and fasting gives us a more eternal mindset. And when we have that mindset, we won't get as sidetracked on temporary things. We won't get as stressed out about trivial things. We won't give in as often, as easily to temptation because my mind's not here and now. What I want, what I desire, my mind is up here somewhere else to what is eternal, what has eternal value and worth. What's not just going to get me through the next day or to the next, you know, moment, but what's going to get me further to what God has for my life. So this is why I hope that you really, really, really engage this week with us in prayer and fasting. It will change your mindset. It'll change your heart. It will change your life because it changes the way we think and see everything in our lives. So there's prayer and worship going on here prayer and fasting going on in Acts 13, but there's one other thing that's happening, and that's the context in which this is being done. It's not an isolation. It's within a larger group. So here's, a, here's this idea that we'll look at for just a minute. Calling is contained within the context of community. Calling is contained within the context of community. So there's, there's three things I want to look at just for a couple minutes here as we try to get ourselves set. If you're, if you're ready, you want to find out, am I set? And here's one way to do that. Prayer and fasting, am I seeking God? But then also, is the context of my calling within community? There's three things we'll look at here. First, there's connection. So Barnabas and Saul didn't just decide one day on their own, okay, we're ready, we're going, see you guys. No, the community they were connected to helped to figure that out for them. God spoke to the, the, church, the other people within the church to say, okay, yeah, you're ready, you're set, now go. It wasn't this individualistic thing for them. It wasn't on their own. It wasn't just their own idea, their own desire. It was this faith community that they were connected to that pointed them to their readiness. Uh, John Stott talks about this. He calls it the tendency of individuality. Too often we see that, I think, in modern-day Christianity. We can't do great things for God apart from connection to the people of God. There's going to be that connectedness. There's going to be that rooting in our hearts and our lives. That's why, again, our relational core value here at First Century is so important. That relational part of your life is that connection to community that you need for spiritual growth and development to help you figure out and discern what God might be doing in your life. Because we're not disconnected parts 
The Bible says we're a body. We're not disconnected people. The Bible says we're a family. And so we have to be connected in this community. So that's why, you know, we'll talk about small groups here in a few weeks, ramping those up yet again. That's why those are so important. That's why we encourage people to get into a small group because you build those bonds deeper than you can right here in this setting. Now, Sunday morning's great. It has its place. It has great value. God has used that and will continue to use that even here at First Century. But there's something about that extra time in a smaller setting where you can really build those relationships deeper. You can learn more about somebody than maybe their first name or maybe where they work. You can learn more about them. You can get intimately involved in each other's lives in a way that grows the effectiveness of the church. That's what this connection and community does. We're not meant to do life in isolation, but to do it together in connection. The second part of this, calling is contained within the context of community, is confirmation. So Barnabas and Saul, again, didn't just decide to go out. The church around them confirmed this calling on their life. Again, if you look at verse 2, it says, send them out to do the work to which I have called them. So Barnabas and Saul already both personally know they've been called, but it's confirmed by the community around them. And one way that the community around them confirms their calling is they're already serving in a different capacity. They're already teaching and leading in their local church. They're making a difference. They're invested. They're involved in the work there. And then when God calls them to something bigger and different outside of that local church, the church says, we affirm, we confirm that calling on your life because we've seen it in action here locally. So, yeah, we know that God then has something else for you. And so, you know, if someone comes to me and maybe they wonder, why won't God ever use me and I want to make a difference and they never serve even here locally, I'm going to have a hard time confirming that they're, they're skipping a step or two in that. Like, if you can't serve where you're planted, where you call home, then why would God have you do this other huge thing that's going to be massive in your life? It doesn't work that way. There's steps involved. It's confirmation through a community. If someone comes to even me, uh, and this is not about anyone in particular, it's just it's kind of a hypothetical here, but if someone comes to me with sort of this, you know, big idea that I'm going to do this huge thing for the Lord, and then it's like, well, but like you're never hardly here and you don't really ever serve and you just kind of suck the life out of the church, it's going to be hard for me or the church to confirm that because there's, not, there's no track record to show that there's anything that's going to lead them to this other huge major thing that God's leading them to do. So connection to community leads to that confirmation. It confirms it's not just my want, but it's God's will. It's not just an idea, but it's actual inspiration from the Holy Spirit. It happens in the context of Community, confirmation does that. And the final thing here is then collaboration. God had called Barnabas and Saul to do the same type of work. He called them individually, right? But because they're connected to this community, they can collaborate and go together and be even more effective. Because they needed each other. They had strengths and weaknesses that the other can compensate for. The two are better than one mentality. So if they had not been connected in this community, they'd go out and probably be going, like, fighting each other's momentum. Or like, why can't I figure this out? I need somebody to encourage me. Barnabas is the son of encouragement, so Saul needed him. Barnabas was maybe getting up there in age. He needed this younger guy to kind of help boost him when he was like, I'm tired and I'm, I'm done here. I need a break. I need to sit down, son. You go ahead and take this one. They needed each other, and they found that collaboration in the context of community. They needed each other. God brought them into each other's spheres for divine purpose. 
And it's even the same way here. So that's why this context of community is so important even here at First Century. If someone maybe approaches me and says, I have this idea for this thing or this ministry, and then I think if somebody else mentioned that, you can connect those people to work better together. And so that's what we want to even promote here at First Century is this connection, this network, this partnership, this collaboration within the context of community. And that's really how, I've told this story many times before, but that really sort of describes my calling to ministry. This process is the same. It worked for me, right? It worked for Saul. It worked for me. Um, so when I was a junior in high school, I had a sense. I was praying uh, and fasting about what God was going to do in my life. And that's when God spoke to me just randomly by myself in my bedroom, reading and praying. Uh, so it's the closest I've ever had to an audible voice experience. I sense these words, you're going to preach the gospel. Now, ministry was not on my radar as a 16-year-old you know, junior in high school. That was not the plan uh, by, by any means. But I knew what that meant. I had the context in my head of what that meant. And so I just kept praying, kind of pushing it aside, like, nope, but not, not doing that. And uh, still to this day, I'm still saying, God, nope, not going to do that. And here I am anyway. So um, nothing's changed. I'm just getting older. So, you know, I, I sensed that in my spirit. And so I, what, I, what did I do? I prayed about it. I wasn't ready. So I had to get myself ready. I had to wait. So I prayed and thought and, you know, kind of internally at first. But then I was connected to a community. I was able to talk to my pastor about this. Hey, I'm sensing this, and I feel like God's confirming certain things, and he gave some wise counsel, some great advice, and helped me to confirm that calling. Talked to my parents about it, and they were kind of like, oh, are you sure you want to do that, you know? And so they were supportive, but there was, there was that connection in that community. It wasn't just this decision that this random teenager made one day, and, you know, the rest is history. It's like, no, there was context in community. And then, you know, even going into Bible college, and now we have this you know, collaboration thing going on. You know, God brought us into each other's lives to do this ministry together instead of individually. And so God had that same process about getting ready and then getting set. So if you're ready, get set through prayer and fasting, seeking God's will for your life, and then connection to community to confirm what God's speaking to you about what his plan is for your life. That's how we get ready and how we get set, but then we got to go. Acts 13, verse 3. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a young Englishman named Henry Martin, and he grew up, um, you know, just kind of in a, a normal home in England in the early 1800s. And he had completed his undergrad degree, and his plan was to pass the bar and go into law school and become a lawyer there in England. But he had heard an uh, evangelist preach about missionary work being done in India, uh, by, really by William Carey, who was a famous missionary at the time. And around that same time, he also read a biography about David Brainerd, who was a missionary uh, to the Native Americans. And in that time frame, he sensed God's call in his life to become a missionary. And so uh, years later, he became uh, an Anglican priest, and then a couple years after that, in 1805, he became a chaplain for the British East India Company. So he would be on the ship with all these sailors and all these crew. He'd be the pastor of that community, of that ship. And then uh, right after that, for the next six years, from 1806 to 1812, he uh, ministered in India, where he had heard about many years before that. And so he ministered in different churches in India, and he actually translated the New Testament into several different languages while he was there. And so he served and gave his life to missions as a missionary. He felt this call from God. He was ready. He was set. And so he went. 
at 31 years of age, he came down with a severe sickness and he died. So really short time span, but so much of it given to what God's call on was uh, for his life. Now, it's poss- this is some legend here. We're not sure if this, what these were his final words or not. But some, it's possible his final words were, let me burn out for God. Like on his deathbed with this sickness at 31 years old. It's not, I have so much time left. Or, God, what are you doing? It's like, let me burn out for God. I'm ready. I'm set. Let's go. But legendary, maybe or maybe not on his deathbed. But this quote is one of his most well-known quotes. And he says this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. Now notice, he didn't say, the closer we get to him, the more intensely we send missionaries. Although we do that here, we believe in that. He says, no, 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 the closer you get to Jesus, the more missionary you become. So it's more intensely that we become that as we get ready, get set, and go. So here's what it comes down to as we begin to close. If you're ready, and if you're set, will you go? If you have an idea of what God's calling you to do and you see that the time is right, the opportunity is there, it's all, I mean, it's just it's on a silver platter, will you go? As, as set and as ready as Saul and Barnabas were, when it came down to it, when the church laid their hands on them and said go, they had to actually go. They still had to do it, not knowing what would be in front of them, not knowing the months of toil and danger and unknowns that would await them. They still had to go. Because the thing is, that great idea that you have is only as great as someone that will go do it. You know, that that thing that God's calling you to do is only as wonderful as your willingness to go and do it. Because at that point, it's not just theory anymore. It's It's not just this idea. Now the pressure's on. Now I'm in the thick of it. Now there's responsibility. Now there's work. Now there's the work actually begins. And I'm afraid there are too many Christians who feel ready and feel set but never go. It's too hard. It's too risky. Maybe they lose interest over time. Not as excited. The moments pass. You know, the emotions have died down. I never mind. I know I thought I was going to go do that, but no, I don't do that anymore. It's too scary or it's too comfortable right here. Like, if I really go do what God's wanting me to do, and it may not even be like, quit your job and be a missionary. It might be, okay? It might be something simple, or it seems simple compared to that, but you're still like, ugh, no, I, don't, I can't minister to them. I can't go talk to them. I can't take that step. I can't try that new thing. I, no, 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 I'm not, I'm too comfortable here. But what's God called you to do? What, who is God calling you to reach? What difference is God calling you to make? As you wrestle with that and and listen for God in that and discover what that is, get ready, get set, and then go. Wait patiently, pray passionately, serve faithfully in the meantime, and then just go willingly. God, whatever you have for me, I want. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whoever you've called me to do, whoever you've called me to reach, I'll reach them. Whatever you've called me to do, I'll do. And it will be the most legendary adventure of your life. So we get ready, get set, and we go. Let's pray. God, like Barnabas and Saul, I believe that for each of us here today, everyone listening, everyone watching, even online, maybe even years later, you have great legendary plans for each of us. 
And sometimes we feel like we're ready for that right now, and maybe we're not. And so as you get us ready, help us to let you get us ready. May we not stand in the way of what you're trying to do in us so you can work through us more effectively. May we wait patiently. May we get ourselves ready as you get us ready for these awesome things that you have planned for us to do. And help us to get set. Even this week as we're praying and fasting, maybe this is part of the emphasis that you have for us to pray about. Maybe somebody in the room has this thought or idea that maybe God's leading me to do this thing or talk to that person or maybe start this new idea. I don't know. This week, let's focus in through prayer and fasting on maybe receiving some more direction and clarity on what that next step might be. Help us to get ready. And in the context of this community, may we serve faithfully here and be involved and invested here and then see where that takes us. There's no telling what you can do with us later on as we're faithful with what you've got for us to do here and now. We get ready, we get set, and then we go. God, if, if we're ready and set, give us the courage to go. Give us the strength to go. Help us to say yes, God, to whatever that blank is after that. Yes, God, I'll do blank. I'll go blank. I'll say blank. Whatever that is, give us the courage when the time is right. You've got us ready and set to go. And you will unleash your power in our lives, in us and through us, as we're just ready, set to go. God, I pray for your anointing this week as we leave this place. I pray for a, a powerful week of fasting and prayer for everyone here, for this church, that you would just um, let us know more about who you are and what you've called us to do and get us ready and set and go. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.